lyssnare, här har ni Ingemar Fast igen, konstnärlig ledare för litteraturscenen på Kulturhuset Stadsteatern. Och jag har den stora äran, jag nästan ställer mig upp, att berätta att den 25 mars så gästades vi av Deborah Levy från England. Hon föddes och tillbringade sina första år i Sydafrika, därefter flyttade familjen till England. Hon samtalade på vår scen med sin kollega. Agnes Lidbeck. So lovely to see you all here, especially you. Thank you and you too. I fell into your book and I'm not <laughs> out of it yet. So I don't know how intelligent this conversation will be because I'm still on a beach in Spain. Okay. But um, we were talking before and we decided that there might be a thousand or two thousand themes in this book and we can't possibly cover them all. Uh, we should start simple and try to cover four or three. Okay. And we'll see how far we'll get. Okay. Um, but actually, you have to start by filling out the form that your main character gets to fill out early in the book. Your name, age country of origin and occupation please Ooh, for the record ah. <laughs> this is a this is like uh, an interrogation from the customs of yeah. <laughs> so uh, in uh, hot milk uh, Sophia who is 25 and in the south of Spain um, with her mother who has a, a sort of limb paralysis. Sometimes the mother can walk, and sometimes she can't. She's a kind of hypochondriac, like there's one in every family, or we are, we are one. And um, Sophia feels very small in her life. She feels like a failure. And um, the book is is about her really finding some courage to take the story that she's been told about herself um, and, and the story that many women have been told about themselves and to hold it, shake it upside down, hold it with it by its tail and shake it and make another, make another story. So she goes swimming in the sea and she's stung by jellyfish which are called Medusa in Spain. And she has to run to the, it's called the injury hut on the beach where uh, a male student puts some cream on the, everybody who's stung by the jellyfish. And she has to fill out a form. And the form is, is name, age, occupation. And country of and origin. country of origin. Um, so you know my name. My age is 60. Uh, my country of origin is South Africa. I was born in Johannesburg, and we left when I was nine years old, and I grew up in Britain. Mm. And your occupation? Oh, my occupation. Um, well, I am a writer, and I uh, sometimes teach uh, writing too. Mm. And when Sophia goes to fill out her form, she's having a bit of difficulty doing so. Uh, she knows her age and her name, yes, but not much else. 
Occupation <laughs> is a difficult question for her, and maybe country of origin as well. This is all, all true. Um, so Sophia is Sophia Papasterchiades. Her father is Greek, but he left the family house when, when she was five. And her mother is from uh, is English. She's from Yorkshire, from the north of, of Britain. So, so really, from the age of five, Sophia has always been asked to spell her surname. How do you pronounce uh, your name? And she, she, she doesn't really know how to hold her identity, how, how to claim it, her Greek identity. So she's a bit from here, a bit from there, like, like so many of us in the world. Uh, so that's her first... So, so there's no such thing as a character without a problem. <laughs> because then we don't have a book. So that's a, an early, a, a first problem. Then the second problem, occupation. She's working in London in a coffee, uh, in a cafe. And um, she is an anthropologist in that she, um, she, she's begun a, a PhD, a doctorate, but she's had to stop it to look after her mother. And um, so she just feels like a, a failure and she doesn't know how to describe herself or who she is or what she does in life. And I think these are sometimes my favorite kinds of people because there's so much to find out um, about what we actually wish for not even um, where we are in life, but what actually what we wish for, what we dare to to dream for ourselves. You know, those those times when you can lie in bed in, in, in the dark and you think, oh yes, what I really want is this and this and this, and you hear it, you hear this, and that's the beginning of something good mm. because you've spoken it, even if it's in the dark. To yourself, if you can go out, you can go out into the world and maybe work on some of the things you you wish for. But she doesn't know yet what she what she wants. She's and I think her anthropology is quite interesting because, um, as you say, she's um, she's unsure of herself and she doubts herself but at the same time she dares to dream quite big because when she's thinking about her anthropology she won't be content with studying urns or ancient burial rites she's interested in something else entirely she's interested in um, in a way hot milk is Sophia's anthropology so she's she's writing an anthropology of family relations of kinship of her mother. So her mother um, has always had these symptoms, uh, headaches and dizziness and heart palpitations and, and um, pains in her leg. And Sophia, from a very early age, has been like a girl detective. What's wrong with mum? What's wrong with mum? So I'm interested in, in how we use the body to... Um, speak for us um, and to um, gather to us love and affection and attention. Um, 
sort of thing. And, and Rose, the mother, has... She's kept Sophia, she's too controlling. She's kept Sophia close to her side for, for a long time. So the anthropology of kinship structures in, in families um, is a very big subject. Um, the anthropology of sexuality, of identity, of our economic um, structures too, because the book looks at debt. Uh, what is it that we owe each other? What are the debts in families that we can't pay back? Um, who owes who? You know. So you, 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 this is your subject as well as your your writing subject, isn't it? Um. I've written down four words. Um, sort of the, the Sophia's anthropology and and the book's anthropology. Um, power, love, freedom, and fear. Wow. Would you agree? I do. <laughs> I are those the right headings? Those are you are comfortable right talking headings. about these? It's so good being on stage with a brilliant writer. <laughs> That's, hmm. um, power. Um, who has it and who uses it against the other. You have, you have uh, a sentence uh, which is repeated um, about love as an axe. Uh, my love for my mother is an axe. It cuts deep. Um, I want to know who's holding the axe. Who's doing the chopping? Is it Sophia who's holding an axe? Or is it her mother who's holding the axe? Mm. That's an interesting question for our own families, isn't it? Um, who is holding the axe? I think that we take it in turns. On Tuesday, you hold the axe. <laughs> On Thursday, you hold the axe. Something, something like that. But power is absolutely right. Um, power and powerlessness. So uh, I guess when I write a book, one of the questions I ask is, who wants what? and what's stopping them from getting it. Mm. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so uh, Rose is immensely powerful, actually, because she's humorous, she's intelligent, she's complicated, she's... Um, uh, she, she can't say, she can't speak out loud the things that upset her or, or humiliate her or the things that have made her feel small in her own life. She's, she's not the sort of woman who can talk about these things easily. And why should she be? These things are hard. So they come out in symptoms. Um, so sorry I don't speak any Swedish. I really am. Um, because I would love to have translated this. There's a quote by the American writer James Baldwin... That was very important to me when I was thinking about Rose, the mother. It goes like this. I imagine that one of the reasons people cling to their hate so stubbornly is because they sense once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with pain. And that really, that really helped me begin my book. Mm. Uh, that's from James Baldwin's novel, The Fire Next Time. 
because I thought, um, uh, you know, the reason Rose clings on to all these medical symptoms is because once they've gone, she will have to deal with pain, her own pain. There's a twist in the book on, on the subject, but we won't give that away. So this doctor in the south of Spain, who they've gone to see, who might offer a miracle cure, uh, Dr. Gomez, he's a sort of shaman, uh, but he's also a serious person, a serious and kind person. And, and the question that I ask uh, the reader is, is he a quack or is he a genius? Mm. And readers everywhere have a different answer to that. Mm. But it's not only Rose that holds on to her symptoms and her medications. At some, time, at some point she's taken off her medications, starts to feel a little bit better and immediately goes back on them yeah. uh, in a desperate attempt. Um, but Sophia is also quite fond of her mother's illness, I'd say. Or is that, is she fond of it or does she hate it? Does she want to be liberated from her sick mother or will that mean facing pain for her as well? Well, um, Dr. Gomez says you're using your mother like a shield to protect yourself from separation and making a life of your own and going off to to um, discover your own desires. So the thing about Sophia, this, I feel quite strongly about this, you know, is like young women, they, they're supposed to really be very sorted. You do well at school, very good at school, very good in your exams, you go off and you get, you, you should supposed to get your job get all your goals sorted, be good at love, be good at everything, you dress like this, you mustn't eat this, you can eat that. I want to give Sophia some wriggle room. Say, yeah, why don't you just make a few mistakes? Why don't you mess up a bit on this, uh, in, the, in, in the summer? I have her um, in, in this part of Almeria in Spain. There, I've I've been going there for 17 years and I always wanted to write about it because the, at night the stars are so bright. They're so crazy. Uh, when you look up, you feel tiny and, and, and um, very small in the scheme of things. And she feels very small. So this was a good... The desert and the stars are a good canvas. And then there was another thing that I found in uh, one of my diaries that I would write it long, longhand in, is that um, in the bushes, in the trees, are the cicadas, but there are also insects, many insects in these trees that make the trees sort of vibrate. It's a very difficult thing to put into words. So you're seeing something quite uncanny. It's as if the tree is sort of going to walk off, just, 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 just sort of vibrating. So the landscape itself was going to kind of um, was was speaking to me as much as as much as anything else. 
and Sophia falls in love with a, a woman. She falls in love with a man. She, um, she swims every day. She gets physically stronger um, and in a way more monstrous because she is stung by the jellyfish who are called Medusa in, in Spanish. And she's stung out of her own passivity into curiosity and into desire um, because without curiosity we really have depression. Mm. Because that pain, the swimming as, as an act of liberation, of course, it's something that her mother can't really do. She can't really go out to the beach. Sophia can go, she can swim. But with that liberation comes also the jellyfish and the, the sting and the pain. And she's quite attracted to the pain as well in her, in her love life as well. Um, so how strong a theme is sort of dominance and submission in, in this book? Because I find that her love life is, is very... <sighs> more about pain than joy, maybe? No, because I, I see where you're coming from, but it's not that's not quite right. Um, so she falls in love with Ingrid Bauer, yeah. who is a who lives in the town, and Ingrid is is she, Ingrid discovers that Sophia sort of has no boundaries, that she can kind of. Uh, her boundaries are like a sandcastle. I, I say think. that her boundaries are made from sand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so um, in life when you meet someone like that, th there's some room for you to come in and, 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 and dominate this person. But Ingrid is not a... Um, a I wanted to explore that idea. She's not like a terrible person, in Ingrid. She's an exciting person. But this idea um, that we can fall in love with someone who's not very good for us, this is sort of like a taboo idea, but it's, we all know this in our lives. One way or another, we fall in love with someone. Maybe that person would be better to fall in love with, but we've fallen in love with this one for whatever reason. So th this was interesting to write about. Yeah. Um, and Ingrid is... Uh, she's, she's a bit like... Uh, not very much, but there's a mythic part of the book. And she's slightly inspired by the goddess Athena, mm. who was the goddess of war. She served the patriarchy. You could see her everywhere, Athena. Um, very interesting thing about Athena that the classicists, any, if you hear, will know is that it was Athena who cursed Medusa. And in her breastplate, on every statue, she has the Medusa. Mm. Because she needed that power when she goes to war to turn her enemies into stone. So she cursed Medusa with something she needed herself. Very b bizarre myth. And, and quite significant for their relationship as well. Definitely. Who needs who? Does Sophia need Ingrid more than Ingrid needs Sophia? I don't think so. No. I think Ingrid needs, needs Sophia because actually Sophia 
is loving. Who does Sophia need? She needs Ingrid. But not as much. I don't know. You have to decide <laughs> when you. Does she need her father? Yeah, children. Uh, children need uh, their parents to be attached to them, and her father has detached himself from from this family and gone to live in Athens. So it was important in the book to have her journey yeah. to find him. Mm. And what does she find when she gets to Athens? Um, because I think it's very interesting because it's set at at the uh, at the time when the Greek uh, monetary crisis is is very evident in in the lives of her father, and um, I think at that point uh, I wrote. Um, let's see, what did I write? Yeah, the emotional or the material power which is the most important because it, wh when in Spain it's very much about the emotional power and who holds it who wields it against <coughs> you. yeah but then in Greece we get this backdrop of actual co very concrete uh who's got the money and and who can afford what uh so i think that's a very interesting play there between and emotion and and uh, yes. cash somehow definitely and emotional debt so, as, as Agnes says, I, I was writing this at the time of the Greek, uh, first Greek uh, financial crisis. And in the media in Britain, uh, the language was a very medical language. The conta debt was contagious, like, like uh, the, the flu or the TB or something. Um, uh, then it was um, austerity was the medication for debt. So there were all these medical uh, metaphors already in the language. And when Sophia, she arrives, she arrives in Athens to see her father for the first time in 11 years, and he has married again, and he's had uh, to a woman who's much younger, almost uh, just a little bit older than than his daughter, and um, and he has a new baby, and this is Sophia's uh, half sister, and um, she listens in to her father singing to the baby, and she realizes that her sister will grow up with the language of love, because she can hear the attachment and the love in his voice for for this child. So that's painful for Sophia because she didn't experience that, but it's actually a good thing for the world because he, we can change and he has changed. Mm. He's moved he's moved forwards in his life. And then uh, Sophia's stepmother who's nearly her age, so there's some humor there um, to be had. She watches them on the balcony at night. It's hot. It's in Athens. And she watches this young woman, her stepmother, light her father's cigars. And that's what you're going to read to us. Oh, yes. I think it was page 151. Okay. Or the other one. Agnes had, has found... Um, she, she said, like, there's some extracts I want you to read. So this is yeah. number yeah. one. 
Um, I'm actually going to go back just a yeah. little bit. Um, so she's watching her, her, her father and her stepmother sort of hiding, just watching in the heat. And she says, this is Sophia speaking. Um, she's thinking about ancient Greece. Did an older man and a young woman, perhaps a girl, sit side by side under the stars at midnight? Did they share sacrificial meat? Girls were married off from the age of 14, and their husbands were often in their 30s. Women were for sex and birth, and for spinning and weaving and lamenting at funerals. It was the women and girls who did all the mourning for their loss of kin. Their voices were higher and had more effect as they wailed and tore at their clothes. The men stood further back while the women did the expressing for them. My problem is that I want to smoke the cigar and for someone else to light it. I want to smoke blow out smoke like a volcano, like a monster. I want to fume. I do not want to be the girl whose job it is to wail in a high-pitched voice at funerals. It's, um, yeah, I don't either. <laughs> um, Sophia is very comprehensible, I think, uh, but at the same time, she's a very young woman. She's 25. Um, <coughs> and I was wondering, because she must al almost be like a, one of these millennials that you hear about, uh, you know, born on at the turn of the century and facing a completely different world than, than we did before internet and, and before all those things. Um, how important was it for you to make her of an age with this with this century? Uh, could she have had the same experiences um, in the seventies, or is she a product of her time? This ruthlessness and uh, mm -hmm. and her. Because at the same time, she's 25 and she still hasn't really decided on her career. She hasn't, she hasn't really broken free yet. Um, yeah. but, so she, but, she's, but you know, the, the writing is insinuating. You, you, have to, you have to decide if you agree um, that she is a really good anthropologist. Mm. She's blazingly clever, right? And... Um, she needs to be bolder. She needs to be less passive and she needs to go for the things she wants. But it's very hard sometimes to really go for the things, to really reach for the things we most want. Even and if there are jellyfish on the way. That's right. Yeah. And, and um, as for the millennial part of it, maybe working in the coffee house is a kind of millennial thing while you decide what mm. where you want to go next. Um, she has a, her mother is a single mother, a single parent. She's supporting um, her, her child all the way through. Um, 
there, at one point in the book, um, Sophia and her mother go to a market in Spain and they have to park the car and they find a, a, a house with a driveway that seems to be abandoned, like no one's living there. And um, they go off, they park the car there, they buy things, stuff happens, important thing ha things happen, and they come back to the car. And when I was writing this, I write in a, in a writing shed in London. It's dark and it's dusty. And I'm, I'm writing about uh, the Mediterranean in August, so it's a bit like I'm having a bit of a holiday as the rain and the snow comes down. And um, I always remember writing that, uh, that episode because they come back into the car and I thought, you know what? I'm going to take the roof off that house. So I take the roof in, in the description of the house and I thought, you know what? I'm going to smash the windows in, in that house. This is like all in 25 minutes of, of writing. I take the windows out and uh, the car starts. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to have a mother and daughter sitting on the veranda, on the sort of balcony of that house. And the daughter is going to be about five and she's going to eat, be eating soup. Then like as writers do you have this conversation with yourself you say oh you can't do that Deborah you can't mirror you can't mirror Sophia and her mother and then put in this other mother and her daughter that's so cheesy you know you can't do it and then the voice goes I know I know but I'm going to do it <laughs> I'm just going to see what happens you know and then that this little voice comes to the writer you can always you can always delete it and uh, so, so having taken the roof off and, and, and the windows out, this mother and daughter are living, they're poor and they're living in this abandoned house. And the, the daughter sees Rose looking at her and she picks up the spoon and she waves. And Rose doesn't really know whether she's saying help or hello or goodbye. That's what she's thinking, and that's as, as she drives away. And um, I realize that that scene was so important. It's not quite as I'm saying it now, not quite as you know, brash as, I, as I'm saying it now. But Sophia realizes that that was the fear her mother had about her that there wouldn't be enough to eat, that there wouldn't be a roof on the house, that, um, you know, that it would go... Wolves would go, are at the door. That, that the wolf, that expression, is that a Is that known no. in... No. So the English expression is the wolf has come to the door, which means that, you know, there is nothing to eat, there's no work, and blah dee blah And that, that fear in Rose has been so strong uh, supporting her daughter 
that she sort of carries that house internally inside her. It sort of makes a, it's a heavy burden inside her, makes her walk a little bit slower, that anxiety. So I discovered when you turn the flame up a bit in the writing and you think, oh, I can't do that, no, no, you discover something, um, something amazing. And Sophia feels some more, a little bit more compassion for her mother. She's furious with her mother mostly. But she begins to understand that her mother had kept the wolf from the door mm. really very successfully mm. for all her life. Mm. God, now I'm conflicted because you said two things that I want to go on with and I don't know which one to choose. Go for it. Uh, we're going to have to choose one of them and then we're coming back to the other. Okay. Um, Because I think it's so interesting, um, as you say, view what what you see from the outside, the perception of uh, of these uh, of this mother and her child, uh, the perception from the outside of uh, of uh, of Rose and of Sophia, um, contrasted with the with their perception from 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 inside, because Sophia considers herself as you said she's she's brilliant and she's uh, pretty but she considers herself quite helpless in 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 some way and, and quite weak and there are there are uh, parts of the book where she's viewed from the outside um could you read um i think it's uh, 183 in your version This is this is someone looking at her from the outside. Yes, yeah, so, so there's somebody watching Sophia, um, and now and again, uh, this voice comments on her. Yesterday, the Greek beauty saw three hens tethered by one leg to the same tree as Sonora Bedellas. She started to weep. It is anguish, angst. Four of the chickens have died in the heat. Let her think no one can see her suffering or how she drags her feet with sadness. Love explodes near her like a war, but she never admits she started it. She pretends she has no weapons, but she likes the smoke. Love is not all she needs, even though she has no one to hold her hand under the stars and say God the moon and say god the moon she wants a job i have other things to do too so it's a sort of mystery voice that mm. gives an, a, another view of her yeah, yeah. But, but but this view because as you said she's she's not incompetent uh in any way and 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 she's she probably could be quite strong character yeah but you know agnes that this this is the thing about female characters There is this idea, you know, that you make them either very strong or yeah. very weak. But actually, no one is very strong and no one is really very weak. And no one is entirely stupid and no one is entirely clever. And so she, so, 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 so she can be all those things. I, I want to give her permission um, to be all those things. To be strong, to be vulnerable, to be uh, clever, to... To to be make really stupid decisions, um, that th that's just a complicated and full human being, and so I think there is this 
there is this idea, especially when we write actually female characters, you have to make one, them one or the other yeah. rather than just as complicated as we all are. Yeah. Which brings us back to the second point, <laughs> actually. Okay. Um, you wrote uh, in The Guardian about Marie Kondo. <laughs> Um, yeah. We're not going to get into the whole condo no, 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 debate no. right now, but um, I thought you wrote quite brilliantly about fiction, and I'd like to hear it in your own voice. I've underlined it there. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so this this was for the Guardian newspaper. Um, fiction, in particular can be boring for the same reasons that make people boring. Its mind is closed. It cannot tolerate doubt. It has no interest in the subjectivities of others. It cannot access the apparently unknowing part of its mind, sometimes described as the unconscious. It is relentlessly cheerful or relentlessly despairing. And most importantly, I'm not interested in how it thinks. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's I think that's sort of true, is don't you of writing? Yeah. That um it doesn't matter how beautiful sentences are or what the story is or the plot and all of that. If we're not interested in how the writer thinks, then we're not interested. Yeah. And and I especially agree with the with the ambiguity in the in the characters. Yeah. Um yeah. because that's the that's the opposite of of this quite dull <laughs> fiction that you're describing here. So, but I I wanted to get into a, a bit of like how your process um because when you're uh, when you're writing these quite complex characters um which are very close to life um you contrast that with a style which is did we agree you're a modernist or right. an early modernist okay. how would you define yourself because your your style is quite abstract while your people are so incredibly true to life so i just wanted if you if you can tell us anything about sort of finding that balance and do you struggle with it or do you just do this <laughs> without <laughs> any trouble at all? In, in case you do, I, I don't like you anymore <laughs> because then I'm very jealous. Uh, how do you balance the complexity of the person and the complexity of the language and the concrete Greek debt crisis and the fluidity of your prose at the same time? How do you do it? <laughs> Please tell us. Um, well... I suppose my influences are the modernists and the surrealists together. So, um, but then I have a problem with the surrealists, you know, because if you read quite a lot of surreal literature, it all sounds the same, it all behaves in the same way. But I liked um, that note that the leader of the surrealist movement, André Breton, gave in his first Surrealist Manifesto in 1924, he said he was interested in two contradictory ideas. Uh, one was uh, real life, and then there was a dream life. So there was the real and there was the su 
real, if you like, and that you could fuse them together and make an absolute reality, a dream reality and a living, and you could make an absolute reality, sort of, sort of, you know, we, we, not, we must never really be obedient to anyone writing manifestos and, and, <laughs> and telling us how to write, how to think, that's, that's the first note, really, never. But there is something, there is something in, in the way that you can tune your mind when you look at a surrealist painting. <coughs> For example, Dorothea Tanning or uh, Leonora Carrington. When I first saw those, the work of those female artists, I'm sorry, Stockham has made me really cough. <coughs> I came from Paris where it was sunny and it's quite cold today. And uh, if you just give me a moment. So, all that work was very influential to me. The modernists, because they're economical with prose, it's a very uh, clear, sparse prose style. Um, and I think that uh, th those, those are my influences, really. And then, what's more important to me than anything else when I read, are ideas. Ideas for the world, ideas for people, for, 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 for the, the things that human beings reach for. That, you know, it's, it's much more interesting to me as a writer the things that people can't say than the things they can say. Mm. So I've always got my eye on that. Mm. So other things can do the talking. Mm. Um, and I look for what they might be. And to keep the work human scale, but to make it um, uh, not exactly realistic and not exactly surrealistic, but just to keep on side with human beings and, mm -hmm. and, and, um, and with vulnerability, with courage, with um, with feeling very small under the stars, and then thinking, oh, I can just reach up and pull one down." Are you an optimist? Mm, nah. uh, what's today? On Tuesdays. <laughs> <laughs> Are you um, vampirical when you write? Do, you Do I suck blood? Yeah. That, uh, <laughs> yeah. What what does you have in mind? Um, in Sweden right now we have a very lively, if somewhat boring, discussion about autofiction. Um, um. How much you can take from the people around you, and w let's not get into that discussion now, but um, do you consider fiction hmm do you think uh, an author has a moral obligation to his or her surroundings uh, yes it's true writing? that writers I see what you mean you know I'm a very literal person when you said are you vampirical I was thinking oh, <laughs> you pick up the cat no we're having champagne later not uh, okay. blood <laughs> I see what you mean sort of like a cannibal yeah uh, you well, um, yes, I do think um, 
I do think it would be wrong to sort of go out of your way to hurt someone. Books are not a, the place to have an argument with somebody in life who you should, if you and I are, are going to fight, we have a fight. I think we should just have it. I don't think it's too fair to, to put, put, that, put you in the book because then you can't answer back. But at the same time, all writers use everyone. Um, so uh, a question I'm always asked about the mother and Rose is, oh, is she, is she like your mother? Was your mother a hypochondriac? And I think she's a little bit like my mother, but not really. Mm. But my sister says, oh, yes, she is. <laughs> she's really like her. So Are your daughters can... like Sophie? No, 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 they're not like Sophie, but they give me some ideas um, for Sophie. You know, when um, I, I think girls can, of, of, of my daughter's generation, when they were sort of 15 and the, the apartment was just full of 15-year-old girls all singing pop songs into the hair, their hairbrushes, I was really struck at, by how openly they talk about their lives and problems in their lives. I thought, actually, that made me very optimistic. You know, I talk about all sorts of problems, mental health problems, boys, girls, uh, feeling down, feeling high. You know, I, I, I thought that was a really good thing. And the boys very open, too, they, they all got on well. So that was a nice thing. Mm. Um, back to the to the condo piece. Um, you write that books are often in conversation with other books. Is this in conversation with anyone in particular? Uh, oh, you know, I was asked this in an interview today. Um, uh, what is this in conversation with? It's probably in conversation with... Uh, Everything I've always, I've ever read. Um, it's in conversation with um, myth, the myth, of the, uh, the myth of the Medusa, the monstrous feminine. It's in conversation with Freud and his case histories. It's in conversation with Lacan, uh, the French psychoanalyst, Uh, because Lacan said about a hypochondriac that um, a hypochondriac is asking a question he or she doesn't want answered. Mm. And I thought that was kind of true because in a when, when um, you know, a patient goes to the doctor and says, oh, I've got headaches and then my eyes go blurry and I feel faint. And the doctor says, you know, I think that's a migraine then the hypochondriac will find something even more. Mm. But no, I have tingling down my spine and my toes go numb. Mm. So there's something they don't want answered. And maybe for women, they don't want to be fixed in a story. You know, because, yeah. because the doctors take what's called a case history, a narrative. Mm. So I got very interested in, the, in that when I was reading and, and all, the, all the, the sort of vaguely clinical things in the book are all very researched in that sense. So it's in conversation um, with Freud. Is it at all in conversation with the Magic Mountain? With the Magic Mountain in some ways, with Thomas, Thomas Mann. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 
uh, that too. Almost, it's, it's such a dense book. It's uh, as I, yeah. it's in conversa- and it's in conversation with the reader, really, because there's 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 so much. Um, well, how can I put this? I don't like to to uh, tell people what to think or how to interpret something. So, as I say, that that there are some questions. Is is the doctor in the book a real idiot? Just after the money, which the readers in Kent, Britain, thought he was. Then we go on to uh, Suffolk in Britain. They say, no, he's a genius. <laughs> I really like that, that sort of conversation. Yeah. We're going to have to start rounding up, unfortunately, because, well, we could <coughs> spend a few weeks on this, but I would just maybe like you to close with the last few sentences. They won't give anything book. away. I promise. The last, the last in the whole book. Yeah. yeah. Oh no. No. <laughs> That's not allowed. <laughs> I don't think I can read the end of the book because no? there'll be people in this audience who won't have read it, and then mm. they say, "Oh, but you've read okay, this well, the end." Okay, okay, don't read it then. But can I, but, can I, but can you just say it's, it's we can't discuss the end, <laughs> but at the same time, it's such beautiful writing. I, I, I'm after the music I, rather than the I, I really than the intention. I understand yeah. your choice, but mm. can I read another section? Yes, you can. <laughs> You're allowed. <laughs> to finish off. Yeah. Okay. So this is just this is just two pages, and it's uh, near the beginning of the book, where Ingrid Bauer is standing by Sophia. And Ingrid is wearing uh, men's Spanish shoes. Uh, So this is told in the first person from Sophia, Sophia speaking. The woman in the men's shoes is standing by my table, straight and tall, like a soldier girl looking out to sea. At the boats, at the children swimming in giant plastic rings. The diving school boat is now loaded with all its equipment and pulls away into the ocean. The brown Alsatian, who I have not yet freed, is still rattling its chains. My name is Ingrid Bauer, she says. What is she doing standing so close to me? I am Sophie, but Sophia is my Greek name. How do you do, Sophie? The way she says my name is like a whole other life. I'm ashamed of my sad white flip-flops. They have turned grey in the summer. Your lips are splitting from the sun, she says, like the almonds split on the trees of Andalusia when they are ripening. Pablo's dog starts to howl. Ingrid looks up at the diving school roof terrace. That German shepherd is a working dog and should not be chained up all day, she says. Yes, he belongs to Pablo. Everybody hates Pablo. I know, Zoffie, I live here. I'm going to free the dog today. Oh, Zoffie, how are you going to do that? I don't know. 
Ingrid looks up at the sky. Will you make eye contact with him when you undo the chains? Yes. Wrong. Never do that. Will you make your body still like a tree when you approach him? A tree is never still. Like a log then. Yes, I will be still like a log. Like a leaf. A leaf is never still. She was still looking at the sky. There is a problem, Zofi. Pablo's dog has been badly treated. He will not know what to do with his freedom. The dog will run through the village and eat all the babies. If you are going to unchain him, you will have to take him to the mountains and let him run wild. In that way, he will be truly free. But he'll die in the mountains without water. Now she was looking at me. What is worse, to be chained all day with a bowl of water or to be free and die of thirst? Thank you.